Would you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, John chapter 13? John chapter 13. We're going to be picking up after Pastor Doug's section. Pastor Doug preached a couple of weeks ago. As you remember, we began uh, this series called Preparing His Own. And Jesus is now in the upper room, and he has just done a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, he took off his outer garment. He laid aside that outer garment, and he washed his disciples' feet. I was uh, actually captivated again as I was hearing uh, Pastor Doug preach that message again, just to see it visualized, one, and just to think about the fact that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Majestic One, wrapped a towel around his waist, laid aside his outer garment, took a basin and a towel, and washed the feet of the disciples. I think what uh, captured me in that section was even more so that he washed Judas's feet. See, for me, I, uh, I think, sad to say, um, is that it's easy to love those who love you. And uh, if you remember, uh, Pastor gave a uh, illustration from his own life of how hard it is to love at times. And uh, we need to do the same. Uh, what we don't see in this passage that the other gospel writers tell us is that just prior to this... <laughs> The disciples were bickering over who's going to be first in the kingdom and who's going to get to sit on his left hand and his right. And there was such selfishness, self-focus, that um, there wasn't a thought about serving one another. And then Jesus gave them this glorious thing. So as we read this passage, I want you to think again. This is right on the heels after he has washed their feet. Picking up at verse 17, we'll pick up actually verse 18, and we're going to be reading forward. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know who I've chosen. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled that he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who sends receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one I send. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testify, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who will betray me, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he is speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it is he whom I will give a morsel of bread when I've dipped it. Would you pray with me? Father, take us back to that culture and help us to understand what is taking place here. Father, we probably can't remember the last time someone washed our feet. We don't think about the morsel given 
we don't oftentimes think about the positioning at a table. And Father, sad to say, we've heard this story maybe a thousand times how Jesus washed their feet and it doesn't capture us any longer. Help it to capture us. Help us to be amazed not only the fact that Jesus humbled himself to wash their feet, but he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. So Lord, today I pray, pray by your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes. Father, this passage that, Lord willing, we're going to work through is going to talk about Judas. We'll see John. We'll see Peter. But in the center of it all, we'll see Jesus. So Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus. I pray that he would be most glorified in what we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to work through this passage, and I would like you to consider that I believe that love is at the center of it. I didn't read the passage, but jump down with me to what I believe is going to be the place that we're going to spend most of our time today. It says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I loved you. So what today I'd like you to think about is this, that love has been modeled We have a modeled love, that Jesus Christ has modeled it for us. He first modeled it for us in the washing of the disciples' feet, but he's also modeled it from us from the beginning to to his very end. Um, He's modeled it for us. I believe that, secondly, we're going to see that it's a motivated love. Jesus was concerned about the glory of God in his life, and he is telling us that we should be concerned for the glory of God in our lives as well. So not only is it a modeled love, it's a motivated love. The the glory of God should be the motivation of this church, of these people. It's not only a modeled love, not only a motivated love, but you will find that it's a mandated love. It says in this passage that we are commanded to love. A new commandment I've given you. This is not a suggestion This is not an idea. God says this church must be representing him by modeling his love. It's a mandated love. The last thing I hope we're going to be able to see is that it's a manifested love. It's a love that is poured out in us, but then through us. That God is going to love others through us. And the reason why we struggle with loving other people is because we try to do it in our own. And we'll see that Peter was trying to love Jesus in his own power. And at the end of this passage, he's going to fail because he wasn't resting in the manifested love of Christ. So a modeled love, a motivated love, a mandated love, a manifested love. So let's start with the first part. It's modeled. We'll come back to it as well. So as we were saying last week, two weeks ago, we were seeing that the foot washing has just occurred. In verse 17, Jesus said this, if you know these things, blessed are them if you do them. God is saying, Jesus is saying to you, that if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. That this church must be a body of believers that loves God, and not simply loving God, but we should be showing it by our actions, in the ways that we think, in the ways that we speak, in the ways that we act. And Jesus then says that type of love and that type of obedience will be blessing to you and to others. And then he goes into verse 18 and he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. Jesus is showing his his sovereign rule. Jesus is showing his omniscience. Jesus is showing that he is in complete control. No one is taking my life. I'm laying it down of my own accord. Jesus is showing that I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. 
So this is what's going to happen, guys. One of you who sits with me and eats my bread will betray me. Jesus said in verse 19, I'm telling you this now so that when it does take place, you will believe that I am he. I believe that Jesus is looking back to, and he's referencing Psalm 41, verse 9. And in that psalm, Ahithophel is um, a counselor to David. David wrote Psalm 41. And most commentaries, commentators believe that Psalm 41 is looking back to a time when Absalom, David's son, is turning against his father. And Ahithophel, David's counselor, is now siding with Absalom. And David says in that psalm that this, this man who sat at my table, see in this culture, to sit at somebody's table, is there's a friendship. There is a relationship. There is a continuity that is there that when I bring you into my table, you become my family, my friend. And what happened with David is that this man that sat at his table has now turned his back on him. And Hithophel finds out that um, his counsel has not been accepted by Absalom. David had prayed in 2 Samuel um, that that God would give Ahithophel wrong counsel. Well, God didn't do that. What God did was this. He gave Ahithophel wise counsel, but Absalom didn't take it. And by not taking it, Ahithophel knew that he was going to be found out by David. So what what he did was he went home, he got his affairs in order, and he went out and hung himself. And in some ways, he was a predestination or a pre-runner of Judas. So Jesus in verse 18 is saying that the man that is sitting here right with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting from Psalm 41. So why is Jesus telling the disciples this? Why, Why does he even worry about it? I think why he did it was so that you guys can trust him. See, if, if it seems as though one that i chosen has turned his back on me and I got blindsided, Jesus is saying, then you may not believe in me. But Jesus is saying that I want to tell you that I chose this one. I knew he was going to do this from the very beginning and he's been with me so you can trust me. So Jesus is telling you that this doesn't catch me by surprise. This is not surprising to me. You can trust me. But I I think the other reason why Jesus did this is this. You can trust the word. He goes back to Psalm 41 and he says, see what happened in the Old Testament was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's coming true today. So that as you're going through the struggles in this life, you can trust Christ and you can trust his word. One of the first books I memorized was the book of John, 1 John. And um, if you get an opportunity this afternoon, I'm going to ask you to read through 1 John. I'm going to ask you to see how many different times in 1 John themes from this upper room discourse come out in 1 John. It's amazing. Do you love the word of God? Do you read the word of God? Do you meditate on it? Do you memorize it? Do you know the gift that you have that you hold in your hands that people have bled and died for that? 
See, Jesus knew that word. He loved that word. He knew that that word was sufficient. He knew that that word is eternal. He knew that that word was authoritative. And he knew that that word was life-giving. And we, as a body of believers, sad to say, don't read it. And Jesus is saying this, that even as the world, even as people that you trust are going to betray you, trust Christ, trust his word. Don't be surprised because I'm not, Jesus is saying. Well, the second thing I think he gets to is not only I want to tell you what's going to happen, he says, I want you to be encouraged, verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one I sent. See, I think that if I were one of the disciples, and other gospel writers say that as Jesus was saying this, they were going around the room saying, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? There was a level of doubt that was going on. Could it be me that could betray Christ? And I would expect that I would feel somewhat discouraged, dejected, dismayed, that one that is here with us is going to actually betray our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that if you are in me and I live in you, then I'm going to send you out. And that God is going to do an amazing work in your life. Amazing work through your life. So let that be a, a significant encouragement to you. But we get to verse 21. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Don't pass over that. You ever feel deeply disturbed? (laughs) You ever tempted towards discouragement? You ever find yourself feeling sorrow? Jesus Christ was called a man of what? Sorrow and acquainted with grief. See, if we understand sorrow, Jesus did. If we understand discouragement, Jesus did. See, we see sometimes Jesus in his deity, and he is fully God, truly God. There is no doubt about it. But he is also truly us, humanity, without the sin. And can you imagine that somebody that you've chosen, somebody that you have broken bread with, somebody that you have ministered with has turned his back on you? And see, now if it were me, I don't know if I'd be able to wash his feet. Left in my own devices. And me, in all likelihood, Judas is sitting right here on his left-hand side. In all likelihood, I don't think I could have him in an honored position. Leave it to me. Jesus is troubled. When you think of a God who's so distant, some of you in this room think of a God who's so distant, doesn't feel with you doesn't feel your pain, doesn't understand the loss, doesn't understand the sorrow, isn't grieving with you. You're missing the God who feels with you because Jesus feels, he knows, he's troubled in spirit. So what we see now is not only is he troubled in spirit, now Jesus is going to say this, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another. They're, they're confused. I, I just don't know who. Now, in all likelihood, John is probably on Jesus' right. He's leaning against Jesus, and Peter probably motions to, Je- to John, say, ask him. And John 
says to Jesus, who is it? And Jesus whispers, probably, in such a way that the other disciples can't hear it, that the one I give this morsel to, this is the one who will betray me. And then after Jesus dipped the bread and gave it to Judas, in all likelihood is sitting in a position of honor, and Judas takes that morsel and he eats it. And what the passage goes on to say is this. So verse 26, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, and then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. It doesn't say it here, but I believe in all likelihood what was happening was that Satan was giving Judas thoughts, tempting thoughts. We have three mortal enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the world system that is out there hated Christ. Satan hated Christ. He's probably sitting there tempting Judas. He's not the real Messiah. He's not the one. You can make more money. Whatever it was that was motivating him, he's talking to Judas over and over. And then eventually, now, he's not just talking at him or to him. He starts living in him. He possesses Judas. I want you to think about this. With Judas's life, what was it on the surface that would have shown that he was not a believer? What was it in his life that it showed him that he wasn't a believer? Nothing. The disciples didn't know that he wasn't a believer. The disciples couldn't pick him out. It wasn't as though when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they looked over and said, it's got to be him. None of them said it. And why is that important? Because just being here in this church service doesn't make a person a believer. Just knowing the word doesn't make a person a believer. Just going out on a missionary journey doesn't make a person a believer. You could see the greatest example in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, but that doesn't make you a believer. And you can't pick them out externally. There's something different. This passage also gives me amazement of Jesus' patience. Because I'm not a very patient person at times. Maybe you're not as well. But Jesus showed his amazing patience with Judas. He, 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 he washed his feet. Jesus bent down and washed this, this betrayer's feet. Jesus gave him an honored position sitting right next to him. And the morsel, I didn't even tell you, the morsel, when you dip off your plate and give it to the person here, that's an honored thing. Jesus, even to the end, is honoring Judas, even as he knows that Judas is going to betray him. Would you do that? Would I? After even giving him the morsel, Judas went out. It says in verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan had entered in him. And Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do it quickly. Can I actually stop there for a second? Jesus is in control. Judas didn't leave until Jesus said go. 
It was almost, you remember when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan? He's telling Satan, get out of here. Leave. And immediately Judas got up. But you know what amazes me, even with Jesus there, in his patience? He could have said to everybody, you see, there goes the betrayer. He didn't do it. Because he said it in such a way that even the people, the disciples were saying, well, Judas holds the money, so maybe Jesus is asking him to go buy something or give to the poor. Even there, he is honoring Judas to the very end. He is giving him one last opportunity and Judas turns away and rejects him. He walks away. John says, verse 30, um, some, some thought that he was the money, um, taking the money, and John ends verse 30 with this phrase, and it was what? Night. Now, is he just giving a time, you know, so, so it's gotten dark outside? I don't think so. I think when he is saying, and it was night, is this. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world. That Judas, if you turn away from the light of the world, who is life, where are you turning to? You're turning to darkness. You're turning to night. Jesus would never look in the face of Judas in the same way ever again. Judas would never see the love, the kindness, the patience, the grace of God any longer because he turned his back and it was night. Night just not externally. It was night internally because Satan had filled him and his eternity was done. That should concern us. That should humble us. Because I don't want to see anyone that I love turn into night. So Jesus said that my love is modeled Jesus said, now my love is motivated. Once he has cast Judas out, it's almost like we can now really have a family gathering here. He is saying, now let's, okay, my brothers, here we go. We're going to meet with one another. And he says, when he had gone, verse 31, Jesus had said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself with the glory of and glorify him at once. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Five different times he uses the word glory. Glory, glorified. What, what in the world are you talking about? Glory comes from this word doxology. You know where we get doxology? It means to show worth and to praise. That Jesus is ultimately worthy and Jesus is worthy to be praised. And what Jesus is saying this is this. At this moment in time, now that this guy has left, the trigger has been pulled. My death is going. My betrayer's left. He's going to get those that are going to arrest me. The steps have been put in motion. I put those steps in motion. I sent him out, but now I'm going to be glorified. Well, where's Jesus going to be glorified? Is Jesus going to be glorified when he gets to heaven? No. Jesus is going to be glorified when he's on the cross. How is Jesus going to be glorified when he's on the cross? He's going to be glorified when he's on the cross because the justice of God is going to be revealed. That God is going to show that all sin deserves to be judged. All of your sin. The righteousness of God is going to be revealed on the cross. 
The holiness of God is going to be revealed on the cross. The love of God is going to be revealed on the cross and all of it is going to be given to you by grace. And Jesus says that my main reason for living here is because I want to glorify God and that God wants to glorify me. So there's a present glory that's going to come through suffering. Can you actually think about that as a believer? That God can glorify himself through your suffering. But there's a second element of the glory. It's a future glory. The glory that I used to have. When I was in heaven and was seated at my father's right hand, I'm going to get that again. When is Jesus going to get that? When he's brought alive from the grave, when he's resurrected, and then he's ascended to God's right hand again, and he gets the glory. And you remember what it said in Philippians? That every knee will what? Bow. Bow, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ made his mission on earth to reflect the glory of his father from beginning, middle to end. Do we make that our goal? Do we make that our passion? Jesus Christ reflected the glory of God. But then Jesus turns and he says that the motivation of his life was glory. He says, now I need to mandate something to you. He says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. Just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You are to love one another. So Jesus has modeled his love, washing the feet. He says, my motivation is for the glory of God and the good of others. And now he is mandating us. He says this, that you are commanded to love. There are some, I know, of you that struggle in relationships. Maybe even people in even this body that you struggle with. People in your family. People in your neighborhood. Maybe your boss. And what the Bible says and what God is saying is this. That I am mandating that you love. Why? Because I've loved you. I loved you. I love how he starts this section. He says, little children. You know, the phrase little children in verse 33 is only found here. And you know where else it is found? First John. How many times is it found in first John? Seven times. I think John laying on the chest of Jesus heard Jesus say these words. And he's captivated. Little children. I'm the child of God. He's captivated by it. He was moved by it and it motivated his life and he heard the mandate. And the mandate did not become a rule any longer. It became a desire. It wasn't duty. It was, I just want to love one another because you love me so amazingly, God. That he becomes the funnel, that I become a funnel for his love, that he's loved me and I can love you. See, that's, that's the amazing thing about God's love. That if you see yourself as a funnel of his grace, that he's poured the grace into your life. Now he wants to pour the grace through your life. He says it's a mandated love. But I think it's also, again, a modeled love. Can I look with you some scriptures about how Jesus loved us? We've already seen that Jesus' love was a serving love. We see that in John chapter 13. But if you look in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, 
Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus' love is a yielding type love. It says this, Now we ought, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength, not to please ourselves, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. So one of the ways that Christ models his love, God's love to us, is the fact that not he serves, saw that in washing his feet, but we also see that he also yielded his rights. See, part of the reason why we get into so many struggles in our relationship is that I don't want to yield my rights. But Jesus says, I've even yielded every one of my rights for you. How else did Jesus show love to us? Romans 15, verses 5 through 9. It says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same mind with one accord according to Christ Jesus, so that in one accord you may have one voice glorify God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore accept one another. See, Jesus Christ not only modeled by serving, he modeled by yielding his rights, but he also modeled by accepting. I want you to think about this crew that he put together, these 13 guys. Do they all look the same? No. I just want you to think about two guys that he put in there. He's got Simon over here who is a zealot. Their group actually went out and murdered people. Woo! Rebellion! And he's got over here, he's got the tax collector who's in the pocket of the Romans. And he brings these two together in a family, and he says that I can cause you to love one another. This zealot and this tax collector can be brothers together. See, that when that community of believers starts to see that, and when the world starts to see that, that is just amazing. How can these two guys come together? Oh, man. He accepted people. Another passage I want you to consider in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. It says this, and so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also forgive. How did Jesus show love to one another? He served. How did Jesus show love? He yielded his rights. How did Jesus show love? He also forgave. Do you struggle with forgiveness? I know a lot of you do. I don't have a counseling practice if it ain't for the issue of forgiveness. I'm telling you. Forgiveness is in every counseling session that I deal with. Every person that walks into my office in some way or another has dealt with pains from their past or pains from their present, and they are struggling with being able to forgive. And Jesus says, I want to love others through you by showing that you can forgive the greatest things. You remember... Several years ago, in the Amish community in Pennsylvania, this guy goes into the school and shoots and kills a number of the kids. Do you remember what the Amish leaders did and the families did right after that? Some of them, some that had murdered victims went to the murderer's wife's house and said, we forgive him. They actually took up a collection 
help that family because they knew that the family was going to be in need. The wife was allowed to come to the funerals of some of the people that her husband had murdered. And the world is shocked. God did more for you and for me. His love is not only a serving love, it's not only a yielding love, it's not only accepting love, it's not only a forgiving love, but it's a giving love. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says this. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's talking about giving to the church. And I know we don't like talking about giving here, but the reality is, is that this body does not move unless we give. And Paul is talking to this Corinthian believers, and he is saying, I could put a mandate on you about the tithe from the Old Testament, but he doesn't say that. He says, I want you to understand what Christ has done for you. See, I shouldn't tell you 10%. You should be a hilarious giver because of what Christ has done for you. But let me read the passage. But just as you abound, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness and in love, we inspire in you, see that you abound in the gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become what? Rich. So many passages I can turn to. I'll turn to this last one in Philippians. Jesus Christ showed his love for us and his glory to his Father and his humility. It says this, Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility let each one of you regard each other as more important than himself. Do not look at the own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." So Jesus' love for us is a modeled love. So I, I, I ask, one finger out, three fingers point back. We got a beautiful building down the road. And if, if any of you haven't been down there recently, I'm telling you, I was telling Pastor Tim, I'm no good with um, uh, blueprints. I can't understand it. I was telling Tim and Tim, I don't see, you know, blueprints don't mean anything to me. When the walls go up, and I actually start to see paint on the walls, and I start to see, wow, now you can actually start to see how amazing that building's going to be. Amazing gift. Amazing gift. But that, mean, that building means nothing. If this church is not a yielding of rights church, if this church is not a serving church, if this church is not motivated by accepting other people who are different from us, if this church is not a forgiving church, if this church is not a humble church, this church will not bring people. 
They will not come into the kingdom. They may come into our building, but they will not come into the kingdom. And they come into our king and building, the big front door will lead to a big back door. They will only stay because they feel that they're at home. So the new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, love. It's a modeled love. It's motivated by the glory of God. It's been modeled again, not only by his washing of his feet, but of how he's loved others. It's a mandated love because it's a command. You are called to love. But I want to tell you one last couple of things. It's a manifested love. It's a manifested love. Look with me in verse 35. He says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I, I don't know if, um, if those people that forgave that killer are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know. What I do know is this. If they're not, they have a, they've done a pretty good, they've, they've raised the bar for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. What God says is this, is that when this church becomes a loving church, his love will be manifested in multiple ways. His love will become visible. It will be displayed to this world. That people will be able to look and say, those people at the chapel at Warren Valley, there's something different about them. It becomes a visible love. But not only is it a visible love, I think it's a vibrant love. See, it's a vibrant love because God lives in you. Christ lives in you. I was just saying this to my Sunday school class earlier, that the beauty of the gospel is not just that we have a relationship now with God, but Christ lives in you. It's vibrant. You're alive. You're born again. You're regenerated. You are free, guys. Live in that freedom. It is a vibrant, it's a visible love because it displayed to the world. It is a vibrant love. This body should be a body of lovers. It should be demonstrated first in this church and then out into the community. The last thing I want you to consider today is this. This manifested love is visible to the world. It's vital here. It's vibrant here, but it is vital. It's a vital love. See, it's visible. The world will see the display of the chapel's love. And it's vibrant because it's demonstrated in this body of believers, but it's vital. It's a vital love. See, Jesus loves for us, Jesus loves in us, but Jesus wants to love through us. The problem with Peter, and the passage seems to turn, and it's just, I don't understand, but I think I understand why Jesus allowed this. It says in verse 36, after he said that everybody in this world is going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another, he goes, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Simon didn't even hear the command. You remember, missed the command. Jesus had said, I'm going, and then he gave a command. The last thing that Jesus had said was, I'm giving you a command. Simon passed over the command. He went back to this. Where are you going, Jesus? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't go. You can't follow me. But you will follow me afterwards. In essence, I'm going to a cross. I'm going to die You'll eventually go to a cross. You'll eventually die, but I'm going there first. That's in essence what Jesus is saying. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? 
I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you? See, Peter missed the last essential of manifested love. It's visible, it's vibrant, but there's a vitality to it. See, Peter was trusting in his own ability to love. I love you, Jesus. You're going to fail me, Peter. And before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. See, our love as a community will only happen because Jesus' love for us, Jesus' love in us, but then Jesus' love through us. So Jesus has given us the model of what love is. It's motivated by the glory of God. Are you here to reflect the glory of God? It's mandated by Christ. We are obligated to seek his love. It's manifested in the fact that it is, it is visible to this world. It should be vibrant in this community, and it ultimately is vital to Christ. I guess I could give you one last M. It's maintained love. Peter said, verse 32, 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, when the rooster crows, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. But a little bit earlier than that in verse 36, what did he say to Jesus? What did Peter, uh, Jesus say to Peter? Where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but what will he say? You will follow me. See, see Peter's going to slip, but he won't fall away because the maintaining love, the persevering love, the enduring love is not in Peter. It's in Christ. So I, I guess I end by this. Our church's motto or belief is that God changes us through what? Ah, nice. I like it. I really do. See how much passion there was, Pastor Tim, there? Vital relationships. <laughs> is our desire to glorify God? It should be. What's our duty? We are called to do that here by proclaiming Christ in his cross and by making disciples. And where do we do that? We do that in this church. We do that in this community in Washington. We do that in this county in Warren. And then we do that out into this world. See, that is how we show the love of God, that it starts in this community and moves out of this community. I was just thinking about tangible ways that we can love one another. Can I just give you a couple before we end? There is somebody that's in this church that texts me every single week and says, how can I pray for you? Every single week, without fail, on Thursday, I will look down and bloop, pops up. Pastor James, how can I pray for you? I know that there is a person in this church who had a visitor. We had a visitor come the last several weeks, and this person took that person into their home, gave them lunch, and now is going to be doing a weekly Bible study with them. I know that there are people in this church that took somebody that needed chemotherapy treatments and drove them, I think, down to Philadelphia to bring them down there. 
Do you get a chance to stop by that building? Stop by the building. There are volunteers that are down there serving this community. There are believers in here that have gifts. I don't have the gift of the building. Nobody asked me to go work in the building. <laughs> they asked me to tear it down. They don't ask me to put it together. Um, Tim was sitting there like, Tim Matthews was sitting there like, oh, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. But he was very patient with me. You have gifts. And those gifts are to be used to manifest God's glory. So I ask you, the modeled love is Jesus. The motivation should be the glory of God. Ultimately, I need you to understand that it is a manifested love. It comes through Christ. And then ultimately, I need you to understand this, that God is the one that's going to maintain that love in and through our lives. Lord, I pray. that you would wrap us in the arms of your son. Father, help us to be shocked anew at what Jesus did for us. Father, help us to be shocked anew that he washed Judas's feet. What patience he showed. What love he showed. What honor he showed to the man that was going to betray him. Father, I, I'm no better than Judas or Peter, oftentimes. Thankfully, I'm not Judas because you've brought me to life. Father, I know that there's some in this room that probably have sat at the meal of Jesus, heard his preaching, heard his teaching, read his word, but have never trusted in Christ. Father, it's not night yet for them. So I pray that the light would shine in their lives. Bring them to faith. Open their eyes. Open their ears. Help them to see the wonder of the gospel. For the many of us who are like the Peters and the Johns and the Nathaniels and the rest of them that are failing and we mess up, we thank you for a God who never messes up, who maintains us in his love. So, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with this grace and help us to live for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.